0: Hi, I'm Liam Smith, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 47 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, we speak to ATP Tour coach Liam Smith, Liam is the coach at Gail Monfie. He tells us all about working with Gail Monfie, what Gail has taught him and much more. He tells us about other players he's worked with, his coaching career, how he became an ATP Tour coach. He gives advice for juniors' transition into the pro game. He talks about his new course, which is a bit different to your average tennis course, which he developed himself while he's been in quarantine. He talks about his perfect player and a lot more. Really great chat. It went on a bit longer than our normal episodes, but it was so enjoyable. Absolutely loved it. And before we get started, just a couple of things. One is, if you're new to the podcast, I'm Fabio, your host. You'll mainly find me at the Functional Tennis Instagram account. But for all our old listeners as well, we actually have a new Instagram account specific for this podcast. It's called Functional Tennis Podcast. You can search for us on Instagram and make sure to follow us. We're going to be sharing Functional Tennis Podcast-specific content only. And I just thought it was a place where we can interact with our listeners and we can share great excerpts from the show. So please give it a follow. Also, moving forward, we're going to try to use more video to record our episodes with our guests. So the quality, we're still trying to figure out the best possible way to keep the quality as high as possible. So bear with me on a few episodes here. And let's get to Liam. Here we go. Before we get started, I just want to say, Hello to our friends over at Head, who are back on as podcast sponsors. Not sure if you saw last week, they re-released the Head Pro Tour 2.0, which is basically the racket that Gustavo Curtin used to use back in the day and many pros, the older pros still use now, but with the updated paintwork. So definitely a racket that I'm looking forward to trying soon. Hi, Liam. How are you?
0: Hey, Fabio. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very great. Great to have you on the podcast. I know I briefly met you when I was invited to the Asics House in Roland Garris last year. You must apology. I actually thought you look, you're fit man-like. And I thought this guy must be Monfils' physical trainer. That was my initial impression. <laughs> you know, so you gave off that persona that you're fit. You knew what you're talking about. But no, you're his coach. Which is great to meet you and great to have you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Tell me, where about are you?
0: I mean, I'm at home uh, in Miami, uh, Miami, Florida in the US.
1: Okay, so the tennis center of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Florida is, is a great place for tennis, obviously. The weather is good and the climate is good. Um, Miami is uh, it's a yeah, big, crazy city, but uh, I like it. I, 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 uh, I like the uh, being close to the water and, and the atmosphere is very sort of multicultural and very European sort of city in the US. So it's nice.
1: And does your love for the water come from your home of Australia?
0: Well, I was actually born in London. So, oh, sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. But I, I did live in Australia for quite a while. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I do. I, I like water sports. I like to paddleboard. I like to go jet ski sometimes, but paddleboard is good because it's could work out as well. It's good for the core.
1: <laughs> so you're English, are you?
0: Yeah. British originally British. And, and I'm American.
1: Yeah. And you've, you've Irish connections?
0: Yeah, my mother is Irish, yeah.
1: Okay, great. That's great to have an Irish person connected at the top of the game. It's it's (laughs) rare.
0: I spend a lot of time in Ireland, actually. Do you? Yeah, I I used to spend a lot of time when I was a kid. We used to go every summer a lot to Ireland. As I was playing tennis, it was a bit less because I had to use the summertime school holidays to play a bit more. Uh, And my parents actually moved uh, moved back to live in Ireland. So they live in Ireland now. They live in uh, in Tipperary.
1: Oh, very nice. A very relaxing place in the world.
0: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful.
1: Let's take it back to those early days before you start coaching. You were a player.
0: Yeah, not a very good one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I played juniors. I played some ITFs. I played futures. I played you know, local tournaments, national tournaments and things like that. But not, uh, certainly not at the level that I'm working at uh, in the coaching world now, that's for sure.
1: And I uh, know you have to start somewhere, so you have to find a love. Yeah. And wh- when was your transition into coaching?
0: I actually uh, moved uh, to the US when I was about 19, almost 20 years old um to vandermeer tennis uh what well, to world-class tennis academy it was called at the time as part of the vandermeer tennis university in, in hilton head island south carolina and uh, that's basically where i started I, I did do little bits of coaching at clubs and things in, in the uk and but my real i consider my real coaching career started then and, and even then it was very much a learning process i you know i was playing before so i hit the ball quite well don't necessarily doesn't mean you to be a great player, but I can hit the ball. Okay. So I did a lot of sort of hitting and sparring partner and playing with the juniors and you sort of learn your, learn your trade a little bit. And, uh, Dennis Vandermeer and, and a lot of the staff there at the Vandermeer Tennis University were great, uh, to help me and sort of mentor me and educate me. And the, uh, the PTR is also that's the home of the, the PTR there as well. So you sort of get to involved in all the coach education stuff and the certifications and things that they were doing so it was a good it was a great place for me to start and uh, I really enjoyed
1: it and where was the transition then from the Van der Meer Academy
0: yeah I actually moved I moved quite a lot I was always uh, in pursuit of of learning and trying to increase my level and and find ways to be better and work with better and better people so I moved to um, Florida to a small little tennis academy in Tampa for a short time, and then across to um, Saddlebrook, the home of the former Harry Hopman Tennis Academy. So that's where I also, again, felt like I was able to go up to a, to another level because there was a lot of a lot of professional players at the highest level there, number ones in the world, and things like that. Training
1: at the facility at that time. Who was training in Saddlebrook at the time?
0: Well, back then there would have been Sampras. There was uh, Capriati, Hingis. A little bit later on was Justin Henning And that's just to name a few. I mean, if you walk around the courts there at that time, there was players everywhere. I mean, it, it was like a, a who's who tennis academy. It was quite impressive. It was it's quite impressive for a young guy to be in there and be like, oh my God, everyone's better than me. So it was... Uh, it was a good experience, I Learned a lot.
1: What players would you have been working with or were you just hitting in a lot back then?
0: I was uh, eventually one of the group supervisors for one of the uh, groups of uh, junior players. It was a big academy back then. There was more than 100, 100 players. So I at one point got, had a group of maybe 30 players and about 10 coaches in that group. And uh, they were traveling to play, you know, ITF junior tournaments and and sort of a level we would do camp sometimes for the USTA. Uh, they would mix in with the pro players that were sort of in a professional group and they would mix in and play, you know, Practice with them, play sets with them, and mix it around. So it was good because we got to work with the with the juniors and and help them develop. And then we got to spend some time on the court with the with the pros and mixing the juniors in with some of the top players. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of a uh, lot of fun. And I um, became quite close with someone called Pat Etchaberry, who was the director of physical training or physical performance there at the at the, at the program. And yeah, he was the guy that so much of the work with all the top. Uh, the top professional athletes, so uh, it was great for me because uh, Pat's an amazing person, and he taught me a taught me a great deal. So, physically, in terms of physical training, but also from the from the mental side of the game. So it was. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun for me to to be in that environment and be around people like Paddy Chaberry and at the time Alvaro Betancourt, who was the director of uh, of tennis at the academy. There,
1: so you're building up the coaching side of the tennis, this the mental side and the physical side. So you're you're combining a nice little package there for yourself.
0: Yeah, I do I do both. I I do the physical training side of things as well for the players. Um, that sort of became something when. When you're traveling a lot on the junior circuit or when you travel with lower-ranked players and futures and challenges and things like that, their budget just doesn't stretch to have physical trainers or physios and things with them as well. So you tend to, you know, they might have a fitness coach or someone gives them a program and, of course, you know kids alike or young young professionals doing both so that you feel the gap. Yeah, that, that was a good start for me with Saddlebrook, with Paddy Chabury, learned a lot in, in that area as well.
1: And then what happened after Saddlebrook? Did you go to IMG then?
0: After Saddlebrook, I actually left Saddlebrook and I started to do more private coaching. So I started to uh, work one-on-one with uh, players that sort of top ITF uh, juniors in the world and, and progress from there. And then I had a period of time there working with Carlos Berengis, sort of Rashadis, I should say. Um, and um, yeah, that, we were based at IMG because he was managed by IMG, but uh, I, I, okay. yeah, I was always just working for him.
1: And obviously, we have a mutual friend, somebody who you coached back. You coached Lazo back in the day. I knew Lazo I knew when he came to Dublin. And yeah, he, he obviously he's tried to play tennis for a while. And then it stopped, he stopped playing, so he started doing a lot more coaching. And he my level rise a lot. I'm a lot older than him. But he was one of the top under 14 juniors in the world. He was thereabouts, so wasn't he? Pretty
0: much one or two, yeah, at that stage. Yeah, finals of Las Petitas. And I think he won the World Team Tennis. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a really talented young player and great, great, uh, great kid to work with. Actually, great attitude, worked hard. And um, yeah, it's tennis. Unfortunately, there's not room for everybody to to be at the top, and things happen along their journey. But uh, he's a great person, and I'm really glad that he's he's doing well and he's stayed involved in the sport and he's doing a great job coaching um, the, the the players in Ireland. There are, are very lucky to have him. I think so it's great.
1: He's a question you want me to ask you? I'll ask you a bit later on.
0: Okay. Well, that could
1: be a tricky one. <laughs> ah, it's not too tricky. But where did you work with him? In IMG, was it? He
0: was at Saddlebrook.
1: Oh, he was at Sa- Okay, I, I He
0: for- was at Saddlebrook. Okay. And, um, he later actually moved to IMG. He was managed by IMG at one point during his junior career as well. So he relocated as well. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you're working with a lot of top quality players of all different ages. and
0: Yeah, I've been very lucky in my career. I've literally worked with some of the best players in the world that were 12 years old and, and some of the best players in the world at the, at the professional level. So it's, it's been a journey I've sort of been through from the bottom and all the different stages and all the different types of tournaments that you can play as a, as a kid, whether it's national, international. and So it was a hard road, to be honest, but I'm thankful for it because I learned a lot and uh, I understand the, the steps and the stages that these kids need to go through all the way. So... Yeah. It's a it's good, good thing now. It was tough at times when you're out there and, you know, you think, am I ever going to get to coach somebody better or at this tournament?
1: Yeah, you got to work at all different levels and that gave you a lot of exposure. You know what's going through their head when they're struggling at a futures or when they're making the transition from a top junior to senior. But I want to get onto to that transition phase. Before we do, you worked in, for Tennis Australia. You did a great job down there.
0: That was very invited to to join the team over there and they had, a great, they had a great team um great program at the time and we just tried to continually improve it and uh it was a lot of fun actually uh, got to spend a lot of time with a lot of the the, the former australian players and, and they're a great group of people and um yeah we i think we had a really successful period for the years that i was there not just because of me but because of the collective teamwork that was was going on and a good overall programme. We produced uh, we produced a lot of players, actually, in that period of time, which you, you see them today now. The Australians have a much stronger representative in the, in the men's and women's game and in the top 100, and uh, I think that's that's a lot to do with the work that the team that was, we were doing at that time. So, so it, was, it was good, it was a great experience for me to live in Australia. I lived in Sydney and in Melbourne, and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was great.
1: The question from Lazo was, what did you do or what did you help set up as part of your team to make, to transition juniors into successful seniors with the likes of Demenoir, Poprin, those guys? Like, how can another country do something similar?
0: Uh, It's a lot. For for me, uh, my philosophy has always been it's a lot about what you do with those players when they're young, how you develop them, how you shape them the sort of experience and exposure you give them to sort of a high level of international competition um, from an early age. And I think also the system that we had did provide a lot of resources and a lot of support. And obviously, when you're a Grand Slam nation, you do have that benefit that you have a a budget than some other federations have. So you're able to look after more players, take more players to tournaments overseas, fund and support more players. So you've obviously got that benefit. But then it's not just about having the resources, it's how you use them. And I think we, we were doing a good job at how we were using those resources and the sort of player-coach ratios, the training environments... And the way that we were able to support the players through their whole transition, through their whole journey. From At one point, we were basically covering the system was from 12 years old until about 23 years old. Um, we had something in place to support those players all the way. And um, also a great team of people. We had a, a, a large amount of national coaches. We had um, sports psychologists that worked for... Um, the organization. We had uh, great medical services support with um, a great team of physiotherapists that were doing lots of screenings and catching future injury risks early on and great uh, strength and conditioning people. So it was a, it was a great uh, collective team and good leadership as well, I think, uh, from everybody that was involved in the leadership. And it makes a difference. I tell you, I, I feel like uh, no system is perfect. No federation has it right necessarily or perfect but it, it was uh, it was a very good system. Every system is going to have little flaws, or people are not going to be happy because they're just yeah. on the wrong side of it or whatever. But the way we we supported funded, and the team that we had was uh, it was it was impressive. I think it's one of the best federation systems that's been around for a long time in the world.
1: And yeah, it sounds like there's a, obviously they, people say, oh, there's money, 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 but it's it's about more than the money. It's all these facets coming together and working together.
0: And I think you've also got this situation that happens a lot in tennis federations where obviously the players can get a little bit complacent. They're getting everything. Everything's kind of easy in a way. Even coaches, we could get complacent. Those federation jobs are usually good jobs. Mm. So, you know, no one's necessarily all over. Somebody loses a match like they are when you're coaching privately on the tour or something like that. So um, we raised the sort of accountability on the players, we raised the accountability on the coaches, and we just raised the overall sort of expectations and standards of everybody, and put a little bit more attention to detail into the planning, the structuring, how players were being developed, so they weren't just going out and practicing or going to tournaments and uh, and playing, but there was a bit more, a bit more in depth structure and planning behind it all. And we also had a great uh, digital services uh, with with the Australian Open. And We had you know great opposition analysis people, people that could do great video analysis work of things that were being done on the court. And we really put it all together in a in a good way. So I think it was a uh, it, it was a pretty uh, holistic program. Let's say
1: there's a lot going on there. That sounds like was Cra- Craig Tiley around when you were there?
0: Yeah, Craig Tiley was uh, when I first got there. He was the director of tennis, and then and the Australian Open tournament director, and then later on. In my time there, he became the CEO of Tennis Australia. So, yeah, Craig does a fantastic job and is a great person. And uh, I think, um, you know, his leadership has had a lot to do with uh, the success that they've had with the developing more Australian players. And obviously, uh, from my perspective now, when I go back there, just how the Australian Open keeps improving and developing every year you go, there's newer, better facilities and a lot of thought goes into it. I think that's one of the things that, you know, you, ha- you can spend money to improve something, but sometimes it's, it's useless, but it's very functional, the improvements they make. So yeah, he's doing a good job. And I give a lot of credit to my time there and Todd Woodbridge and uh, Dr. Maka Reid, who were all involved in the leadership the, the player development, athlete development programs. I think they did a really, a really good job, and maybe didn't get as much credit as they deserved for the the players that were produced as well. As, as is often the case,
1: <laughs> the, there's always some people left by the curve. Yeah. Where you know it's hard; not everybody gets thanked. But we have Craig on the podcast next week. I was in Australia last last year. It was amazing. I was amazed; had the full run of the place. And the whole setup, as I agree which is unbelievable. And compared to the rest, it's just so much nicer. And you speak to the players and they absolutely love it. Like, it's a great way to start the year. But Craig was ever so nice. He brought me into his office, had a chat with him. And he was so sweet. So really looking forward. To-
0: he's, a, he's a good guy. And so the ATP Cup with uh, the ATP and the Tennis Australia's uh, mission was a, was a great event which is no surprise because they're always very organized.
1: They did well, Tennis Australia, this year. They were lucky, sorry, in a way that the ATP Cup, they would have got money from that and from the slam. So I'm really interested to ask him next week what his thoughts are. Is he getting shaky over 2021? So that's going to be interesting. After Tennis Australia, what was the, the roadmap after you finished up?
0: After Tennis Australia, I had a little break. It took a, um, uh, almost the half a year to a year off and was pursuing some other business interests that I had uh, back here in the US and sort of running and looking after those. And then I started to work with Radu Alba at the at the end of uh, 2015. Yeah. That was my next step in the in the journey, I guess.
1: What was he ranked when you started working with him?
0: Maybe 120, 140, somewhere around there. He was... Um, he qualified, I think, at the US Open one year and played the main draw, I think, of a Grand Slam one time at that point. Maybe two, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, he was 26 years old and uh, he was a sort of challenger, a very good player, but a, a very good challenger player and um, sometimes would, would break through and play a few matches on the ATP Tour, but mostly challenger tournaments.
1: What did you do to help him become a ATP week-in, week-out player?
0: I would say the first three or four months that I worked with him, his ranking went down, actually. So not all
1: okay.
0: but he went maybe down to about 170 because he had some some points to defend. Um, we were, you know, trying to improve his game and work on areas of his game. And um, like can often happen when you start coaching players, if you start to make adjustments and changes, sometimes you take a couple of steps back in order to take a larger amount of steps forward. And I think one thing that I give a lot of credit to Radu for is he... Even though his results were maybe not really good straight away, I think he could. He bought into the the concept or the the vision of how he could be better, and and he he had um, patience and he was willing to that process and and not because he felt like he was maybe as a player a little bit later on, maybe six months into it, then he started to play uh, not even maybe four or five months he started to play really well, and then he he made a bit of a jump up. So, yeah, I think that's a good lesson for a lot of players and even parents to learn that sometimes it's not instant. It's that process and you've got to be willing to stick to it. And uh, that was a a lot of credit to him for that.
1: He had to trust you.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it comes down down to trust. It comes down to belief. And I think it's very important when you're coaching players uh, like that uh, and that level to, you have to have a vision about how you're going to improve them. But at the same time, it's um, it's a little bit like Agassi once said. It's not about what you know or what you say. It's about what they hear and what they can sort of apply. So you've also got to find a way to, it sounds kind of, uh, you've got to sell it to them a little bit. You've got to sell them on the vision of how they can be better. And you've got to get them to sort of understand why you think these things are important and then sort of buy into that process of going about improving those areas of their game. And if if players don't really go through that process and they don't really buy into, well, if I do this, I'm going to be better, then it's very hard because they may maybe do some of the stuff you say and, and some of the stuff that they've always done before and you don't always make progress. So for me, it was always, with, with Radu at the beginning, it was always about just trying to show him and get him to, to make it our vision rather than my vision of what he should do or even just his vision. It, it had to be a collaborative thing that we both believe that if we do these things, You'll be a better player, and um, we—I wouldn't say we drastically changed everything, but we, we improved things. We changed the way you played. Uh, a, a lot of it is mindset too, because good players—if you're a top two player—you're really, honestly, a very, very tennis player. And some of it is, is mental. If you believe you can beat certain people, yeah, there's a certain self belief, uh, self confidence that has to be built if you're gonna if you're gonna move up, or striking or athleticism, as you've seen. All the players are good.
1: It's really, you want the right people around you who can help you get that belief.
0: Yeah.
1: And give you the vision. And then obviously you being able to break it down into his language, not Moldovian, but his understanding of things and then you're both on the same wavelength.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's for me, that's a lot of what coaching is, is is you've got to communicate well and you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to make sure that you're on the same page. Because if I'm banging my head against a brick wall, trying to get someone to do something and they don't really think they should do it, you're not really getting anywhere. And, um, if the, if the player doesn't believe in what you're saying as a coach and what you think is, is the best thing, then you're really not getting anywhere because you're just sort of treading water or whatever. So yeah, it's it, it's the collaboration and you've got to communicate well to to be on the same page about what you think. And and sometimes it's also, you've got to be on the same page about what you don't think or, um, or what you don't agree with, let's say, because sometimes players with coaches, they'll just, uh, they'll just go, yeah, and they do whatever. And I think it's important if a player doesn't believe in something that you're saying or they don't agree that they tell you, well, no, I don't think I should do that because when I do that, this happens. And then you can communicate, talk about it. And as a coach, you might slightly change your point of view because they've explained something to you or you might find a better way to explain to them why they need to to, to change something. So yeah, you've got to better have that two-way communication and trust.
1: And no, yeah, I completely agree with you. And a question I want to ask you about Monfi later on, but maybe I can ask you now is obviously the player learns a lot from you on situations and how they're going to improve. Like from somebody like Radu Albert, what did you learn from him?
0: Uh, For me, Radu's journey is is something amazing. It's something that they should write stories about because where he comes from, the sort of resources that he had as a young player, just perseverance, his determination, his work ethic was... uh, was something incredible. And also his ability to take I would say his ability to take sort of criticism or to take um, take on board what he had to improve and then the willingness to, to actually do it because there's a lot of good players out there that as a coach or uh, even another player, you might look at their game and you might think, geez, if they just did this and this a little bit differently, they might be way more successful. But they're just not necessarily open to, it. or they're, they're afraid. They're afraid to change too much in case they actually get worse because that can happen too.
1: Or to rank and drop.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I just think that that's one of the, the, the things that a lot of people and, and me was reinforced is perseverance, determination, work ethic, and not being afraid to challenge yourself to get better is is massively massively important and i think you know in our sport everyone writes for and everything and he's an amazing person and so are all the legends but sometimes it it would be good to have a little bit more light shed on people like radu because really, it's quite an exceptional story how he's come about his process and developed a bit later on and yeah it's something
1: i think uh, I'm not sure if, if you know the website Reddit.
0: Yeah, well, it's the it's uh, Serena's uh, husband, right? He...
1: Yes, it's the yeah. He, you, I think he so He may have sold it, but it was. It's called the. It's called the start of the internet. Basically, anything that goes viral sort of always comes from there most of the time, and just very topical subjects and. But the tennis section, he's the king of the tennis section. Really? Everybody in there. look, He built up such, there's, well, I'm not sure how many thousand people are on there, on the tennis section, but he went in there. He was one of the first persons to do an AMA. He got in, he got he bought some of the members tickets. He gave them tickets to the matches. I've never seen anything like it, but he built himself such a big fan base from there. It was incredible to see. This was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. But he, he was really down to earth and it was just, he was just interacting. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, so he is loved. He's the king of Reddit Reddit tennis. So he's really loved there. And so after Radu, what was next after you finished working with Radu?
0: Well, I actually was coaching Matt Edden at the same time um, with Albot for uh, about a year and a half as well. So I had both the players in the top 100 at the same time, which was uh, it was good, but it was tough because, you know, you've got, you've got two players and everyone thinks that it's easy. You know, oh, they just practice together and away you go. But actually they didn't practice together very much at all because they had different game styles. And, uh, and the, the way that I worked with them, different personalities, different game styles, uh, in some cases, different schedules that made sense for them. So it was always about trying to individualize it to both of them. So they didn't really spend that much time together on the court. They got on well, they were good friends, Spent time together off the court and practice a little bit. Sometimes you'd warm up for matches and things, but most of the time we were doing everything separate. So it was like having two jobs at the same time. That
1: must have been tough. And was there ever any bickering? Was there ever any bickering, I want to practice in the morning or w- did it just work out that one liked early, one like later?
0: No, they were both, uh, you know, they're both very professional guys, and they we we, had, we we basically had a WhatsApp group, and we would organize and plan all our practices, and 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 we organized it pretty well, and they were good at compromising with each other with that stuff, and yeah, it, it was good. I mean, it, it it was tough at times because it's like one match after another or one practice after another, and but uh, yeah, it's it's a good challenge, and it was it was good to help both of them at the same time as well for me because they had. They had different games, so it was kind of um, it was fun because one player played a certain way and another player played a certain way. So as a coach, it was uh, it was it was a nice time to be able to to get your teeth into both. You know?
1: Your senses must have been on fire, like you know, you're just picking up different things from both of them who they're playing and different strategies. That must have been quite a learning.
0: Yeah, we one one year at Wimbledon, it was it was great and it was it was tough because they were playing which was fortunate they were playing on opposite days so one's on a day off and the other one's got the match but for me as the coach they both that year made the third round and for me as the coach I had basically 7 days of a match every day you know so every night I'm up looking at videotape and stats and preparing and organizing warm ups and practices and yeah it was um It was a pretty heavy workload because I do spend a lot of time. I look at a lot of videotape of opponents and data and stats, and uh, it was quite tough because you never really, as a coach, you never got that sort of day to prepare for the next match. It was literally stay up half the night or all night, getting stuff ready for the next day and then go again. So it uh, it was good, but it was tough at the same time.
1: And did they ever play each other?
0: They, no, they didn't actually.
1: Oh, that would have been amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would have been, trumped. I'd have been sitting on my hands in the in the back row of the stadium on that one. But
1: You're fired, boss.
0: <laughs> they played each other actually maybe six months after I'd stopped working with them. But during the time I was working with them, they didn't play each other. There was a couple of times that they could have uh, in a later round in a tournament, the way the draw was, they could have played each other. They didn't play each other. But yeah, I've had it happen before with the juniors with Tennis Australia. It's a tough situation, you know, it's not easy when, when you have
1: that. Do do remember last year, I'm not sure, oh, I can't think, Douglas Cordero, Douglas Cordero, the fitness trainer of Fognini and team last year. I know he's not working with Fognini anymore. I thought they played each other one day and I was trying to figure out which box he was and I'm not sure if he was in a box then. But I always thought the two guys used to warm up together.
0: It's usually better when that happens. If you, if you don't decide, you just get a random ticket somewhere. <laughs> It's, uh, it, it, it's very difficult. Yeah.
1: What was after Dennis Novak and Radu? What was the next stage of the career? Oh, Matt Edmond. Sorry, it's not Dennis Novak. Matt Edden.
0: Yeah. Then I stopped with them, and um, Gail had asked me to uh, to work with him shortly after that. So I started to 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 work full time with him. I'd done different work with him over several years. Uh, we'd done work here in Miami in pre seasons and and different things. But he'd asked me me for a little while if I would uh, join his team. And um, at the time, I was still working with Radu and Matt and wanted to make sure to to do everything the right way for them. And then it came to the end of the year, and I just felt like I needed to change, you know. I think one thing as a coach, uh, you have to also understand your own limitations. I felt like we'd been three years, we'd worked very hard, we changed a lot. And I had, how do you say, I'd been quite tough on him at times in order to get things to happen. And although we had a great relationship, we still do. But I just felt at times a bit frustrated that I I feel like he should be doing better. Uh, his ranking should be much higher. Why, isn't it? And I'm, I'm looking at his game and all things that we've improved, his backhand's better, his serve is better, we've changed the court position, his confidence is better. Why isn't he winning or why is he losing matches a certain way? And I I sort of came to the conclusion that maybe it was time for him to have a different voice that it would make, you know, I felt like we'd done a job and he'd improved and developed it, but maybe there was still some ingredient or something missing or a different point of view or a different perspective on one thing that might be a catalyst for him. And he was also not a young player. He was, uh, he was 26 when I started and he was around 30 when I stopped with him. And um, I just felt like maybe a, a different voice would help him. So I sort of made that decision where I felt like I'm a little frustrated as a coach. That's not good because you, you get a little bit upset about things you shouldn't. And also, maybe it was better for him to, to find, a, to try at least something else. Could always come back. But if he tried something else and it, it gave him a spark and higher, that, that was great, and and he, and he did. He, he hired a really good coach from Sweden, Magnus Tiedemann. and uh, he won a title two months after we stopped working together. So I'm, I sort of I'm happy about that because I feel like maybe just something a little bit different put together with all the work we have done, and 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 the guys even more successful. So I, I see that as a as a success story, and I think as a coach you have to be willing or understand that that's part of the process too. Sometimes you, you've done everything you can do in a certain way, and it's time to to, 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 try something different. So for me, it was also, I felt like it was time for a new challenge and to, um, to take on a different player or a different game style. So I said to the guys at the end of that year that, uh, it was, it was enough for me uh, with two of them as well. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a hard road and sometimes you, you sacrifice one to help another and you know, you, your schedules all over the place. So they don't always get the perfect scenario either. So I felt like it was time for a change. So, yeah, I had a change and a different style of player again. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, but at least you've only one player. Yeah. So you probably have a bit more free time there, do you? Well, when you're on tour.
0: Tournaments are tough because you're, there's always a lot of preparations to do and, um, yeah, you've got to be ready for opponents and organize the practices. And so, yeah, still there's a lot more goes on behind the scenes than people see. They sort of see a practice and a, and a match and that's sort of it. But we, we have quite full days sometimes.
1: And tell me, what's, the, what's it like being working with such a talented athlete like Gail?
0: Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, he's he's a lot of fun. He's a really good person. And um, he's the hard worker. Um, he, he has a great capacity to work hard when he's motivated and when he's in situations that he, he really wants to get stuck in. And I don't think people always realize that about him. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, an amazing athlete. So it's just, uh, it's a privilege to work with him also. Um, because he's capable of so much, so it's uh, it's, it's a privilege and a responsibility at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah. From what I've read online, very little now. You've just trying to tighten him up a little bit. His, you know, his mentality, his training structure. You're trying to give a bit more definition on everything. Is that what you've tried to do? A bit more structure.
0: A little bit more sort of attention to detail and structure in certain areas. And change a little bit the way that he, he, he plays to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit closer. Not necessarily close to the baseline, but more, better movement in and out of the baseline. So if he is far back in the court and he strikes a good ball to just move up and recover to look to be more aggressive on that next shot. So you're sort of maintaining a slightly more aggressive position in the court. Um, trying to get him to go forwards a little bit more. Obviously, he's the fastest guy in the world. And I think uh, sometimes he, he doesn't use that speed to be aggressive enough. Sometimes it's just to be defensive. So we put the time and effort into uh, just shade and athleticism that he has, which is something incredible, to, to be a little bit more aggressive, develop his up around the net and use his volume. It's a lot like the situation with, like I mentioned with Redu, where Kogoni uh, and, and Gale was very motivated. His attitude has been great and uh, he's been working with a lot of work in and, and takes certain things on board and we communicate well. And then we, have, yeah, a lot of credit goes to him too, for, for improving. And also, uh, when you have a player that's getting older, like he is, there's also a lot of experience that they have. So he's got a lot of experience to draw on. So we have quite good conversations about things and and um, I think he's matured a lot as a player over the years. He's also had lots of good coaches over the years as well. He's used to having lots of good input. And I think we're just finding a nice balance as to little areas to improve and, and going about trying to be, be better. That's, the, that's the, the main goal.
1: And how, his instinct would have been, obviously, when he hits a shot, to sort of move back and you're trying to get him to move forward. How, how do you train that? in during the season
0: when we started we'd done some previous off seasons together here in miami where we worked on some certain things and um with his former coach and then when i started with him we were we were a little bit fortunate he didn't play the davis cup finals for france that year and we ended up having a seven week uh, we were able to put a lot of time in on the court and do a lot of work on the because so i definitely believe that if you're going to do something in a match. And especially if you're going to do it in important moments in the match, you have to have done it a lot on practice court. And you have to feel like, even in the match itself, you have to have done it at different stages in the match before you're going to risk to do it on a break point or a valuable moment in a tie break or something like that. So it's about that sort of repetition. And yeah, you're just getting comfortable with something, especially like going forwards to finish points more than that. It's a lot about... The opportunity, where, when you go, how you go, where you volley, what position you're in, how you cover the space. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. So we, we, we spent a lot of time. We, we had hours and hours and hours on the court of just approach approaching and, and volley points and things like that that we were doing with, yeah, put, put a lot of time into it. And sort of mindset shift is to use use your, your speed, to, to always be looking to use your speed to be aggressive and only use your speed to be defensive when you're forced to rather than by choice. A lot of people in tennis, they sort of make the mistake of thinking that, oh, you should play on the baseline because there there is some players that they're, they're a much better player if they play on the baseline. Um, and and Gail is one of those players that um, he has to strike a good balance both because uh, when he drops back chord, the court, it's very difficult to get a ball past him. Um, he can he can almost reach every ball and um, he can keep a lot of pressure on opponents with that. So we've just sort of tried that balance of when he is further back, just to be able to recover up a little bit quicker, find a better position in the court. And if there's an opportunity to be aggressive with a slightly better court position on that, take it on. And he's, I mean, he's been really doing a great job of that. I have to give him a lot of credit. We used matches in smaller tournaments and things to continue to reinforce that. and. Yeah, he's, he's, been, he's been really good with it. And he's even come up with and said, I know I, I, I was a bit far back. i got to get closer. Or, oh, I, was, I was too aggressive today. I think it's about having a shared vision. You've got to be on the same page about what you think you've got to do to get better. And, um, yeah, if, if you're both trusting each other and respecting that process and working together, you're going to be better. So that's what we're doing.
1: Great. work. Well- You're both on the same page. So you're, you're winning. You're vote winning. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the the world they just launched their most innovative tennis range ever which includes the new court ff3 novak the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of novak Djokovic. get your pair now at asics.com what have you learned i know i asked the original i was originally going to ask you what you learned from gail i know we asked Radu, but what have you learned from working with gail so far what has he taught you
0: it's very interesting with gail his uh, his vision of the court you know, every player is an individual. They have their own way of seeing and doing things and perceptions. And, but just his um, his vision of the court is really quite... And, and even people don't realise it because they see this incredible athlete and a big showman and he has some sometimes fantastic trick shots. And they don't realise, but he's a very intelligent tennis player. He really understands a lot of who's doing what to who and what's going on on the court. And session uh, sometimes... Um, you, you think, oh, we'll do that, but then if you ask him, he has a very good reason why, and he really sees it. So uh, we've had a lot of fun talking about it, and uh, and I've learned the unexpected a little bit sometimes. A few times he's gone running into a corner, and I have thought, geez, what's he going to do? And something ridiculous happens. So yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting
1: what's I know you've, you've seen a lot of outrageous shots but in your mind what's the most outrageous shot or get you've seen him you go that is not possible I know he's done he's done that a lot of times is there one that sticks out
0: there's the one in the that won the shot of the decade that was uh that was because for me where I players up in one corner on on the same side when he running back for that ball i get I, guess I can't situation unfold and your mind starts to think about all the possibilities and of course I never thought of that one but um watching it and from my where I was it looked like he was to the ball uh, it looked like he was almost on on his body the ball so I didn't at all see the possibility for him to hit the shot that he did uh, it wasn't till afterwards you know when he hit that shot I was like how did he do that? It was like he hit it from his stomach. And so when I looked at the video replay, I could see that the, from a different angle, the, the, the body position that he had with the ball, that it was maybe a, a viable option. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was a crazy one. But for me, it's actually some of the shots that he he digs out, some of the defensive shots that he digs out in big points in matches that is is, is more impressive. Those shots obviously make the highlight reels. But for me, sometimes when you you get served wide by a great serve and you make the return and the guy rips the ball on the line in the other corner and you get there and you put that back deep and, and you just keep that pressure on your opponent. Those are, those are even more impressive to me in a way, because those are, those are the ones that will often win you the matches. Sometimes highlight shots win you matches too, because you just completely mess the guy's head up because they can't believe they lost that point. But yeah, I I like the, I I like it all. It's, uh, it's all good.
1: I say it's good fun to work with. Like, what are the the practice sessions full of fun? I've seen a bit of the stuff with, obviously, we've, posted loads of videos of him over the years on functional tennis but i am seeing more lately his fun with his girlfriend he has some fun practicing but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty when you're there and you're training for a match is it all serious or is there his character there's always a bit of fun thrown in
0: well I think the, the, the great thing about Gail is is he loves the sport of tennis he loves to play he loves to compete so when he practices it's not like it's necessarily a chore you know like some players it's, just, it's a job and they work it they're you know, doing their thing. For him, he always enjoys to be on the court and he, and he does have fun and his personality, he has a great sense of humor and, and we do have a lot of fun. but at the same time, there's a very serious edge to it. and when we're on the court practicing and we're getting ready, um, he puts into work and, and there's, a, there's a real focus but in a, in a nice in a nice way. you know last year prior to the US Open we were, we were practicing five six hours a day at the US Open site um, the week before the tournament and he was putting in some some serious work. I can, uh, But yeah, having fun at the same time, I think. that, But I think that's what you've got to do because if practice becomes like a monotonous chore, then it's not good either because you don't really want to do it then.
1: Even from a recreational level, you can play tennis for one, two, two and a half hours. But after that, you're like, whoa, that's a bit much now. For for these guys and you stuck out there for like all these hours, it actually takes a lot of love of the game or else pretty quickly you lose interest because it turns into a job. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I think, uh, you know, one of the best practices that we've had um, was actually one where him and Nick Kyrgios were playing practice sets on grass. And uh, it was just, yeah, it was great because the level was really high. The quality was really good. But both guys were, you know, having fun with it and, and, and in, a, in a good relationship and friendship with each other. And, and it was just a really nice atmosphere, but it was very productive. So and it was fun to watch those two actually play on grass. It was quite entertaining.
1: I would have loved to have seen that. I'd say it was very entertaining see, you've been speaking to Gail. Is he playing any tennis at all? How, what sort of interaction do you have with him at the moment?
0: Yeah, he's at home. Um, he's, you know, they've got some fitness equipment at home that they do some, some maintenance sort of physical training and just try to stay healthy and in shape. I think all the clubs, like a lot of the clubs and, and tennis facilities in, in Europe and where he is, is are closed. So they haven't been able to really get on the court that much, um, if at all. But they've been uh, able to just stay at home and, and stay in shape. And Gail is actually doing some video game uh, streaming on uh, on the Twitch platform. He has a a channel there, and he's doing some cool stuff. He did something last night with uh, Tony Parker, the former NBA player. And uh, yeah, he's having a lot of fun with those things. He's a kind of person that will always stay active and um, keep himself busy and find ways to enjoy enjoy what he's doing so it's good he's in a good space
1: and i'm sure he's a competitive girlfriend as well so i'm sure there's always everything turns into a competitive battle
0: yeah yeah you should see our games of uno (laughs) we have some uno battles around sometimes with the team but yeah
1: no and tell me last question on gail he's a watch lover did i hear that he loves he's on some watch board and he's crazy about watches
0: Again, a lot of of the time people wouldn't know this about him, but he's an expert in Swiss watchmaking. And uh, he has a a lot of knowledge and expertise in the Swiss watchmaking industry, and he's a juror for the Swiss uh, watchmaking industry. So when they give awards to new watches or uh, different things, uh, he's one of the judges that votes on a panel to to decide what's watch of the year and what watches are gonna be uh, given prestige presi- positions at certain watch shows and things like that. Yeah, he has a, an incredibly extensive knowledge and an incredible collection as well, um, himself. And uh, it's a lot of fun because I, I like watches too. And and my former player, Matt Edden, is also uh, a bit of a watch enthusiast and also has a lot of knowledge. And uh, it's quite funny sometimes when you sit down with Gail and, and he can explain to you the inner workings of, uh, Particularly, watch you—you wouldn't expect that, but uh, yeah, it's an incredible knowledge that he has, um, and a passion for it as well. He sees it as a as a, a, an artwork as well, so it's a lot of fun. And he has a, an Instagram page now. It's called My Son Watches.
1: Okay, I didn't. I'll, I'll write he, that down. Uh... He
0: posts uh, pictures of rare and um, historical uh, timepieces. Uh, gives little information about them, and uh, and it's really it's it's a lot of fun. It's nothing about tennis. It's just only about about watches and uh, there's some quite incredible pieces he's posted
1: already on there. I'd say it's great that they have a passion outside of tennis, be it he has watches, be it Sitsi is a photographer, and I'm sure I even see other coaches like Ryan Williams loves his fishing. He's catching fish every day, big <laughs> monsters like and he has the players like he'd have Coffler out there catching fishes with him. So it's great to have that, you know, just get off the court. Let's not talk about tennis and have a passion. But Moving on from that, I've I only I came across your website earlier this week and I thought it was great. You must it must be just up, is it?
0: Yeah, it's only up a, a few days. Yeah, it's maybe four or five days. It's been up. It's been interesting. You know, I, I I was pushed a little bit by by some of the players I used to work with and some other coaches to to do to do it. I usually have never really done that that much, but uh, you know, I felt like especially now with the the situation where a lot of people are at home and there's not a lot to do, that there might be a, a good time to get more content out there for people and also from my own situation where where i live we were quarantined or locked down sort of um orders from the the mayor of miami and uh the governor of the state so i was basically at home for 41 days now at home and so i got stuck into it got got some film crew stuff together and uh, we made this uh we ended up making 33 videos and um yeah, it's just basically all about the player development journey. So it's, it's tailored in a way that junior players can watch it and get value from it. Coaches, uh, especially younger coaches that are just starting out or learning or starting to coach on the, the junior circuits or the tours might get some valuable information. And uh, also for parents, because I think sometimes parents make a lot of mistakes with their kids when, they, when they're developing them to or as part of their development process. Because they don't really understand what's going on, even if they think they do. So I just wanted to sort of tailor something that all three sort of areas could get something out of. So there's a couple of videos that are maybe a bit more specific that a coach would get more out of it. Couple that maybe a parent or a player would get more out of it. But in general, everybody can watch them and hopefully take something something from it. So it's uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a, it's been a tough project to do actually to come up all the videos are sort of four to four minutes five minutes there's a couple of the seven where it just I couldn't shut up but (laughs) um yeah it's been a great project and it's uh, it's online lcstennis.com and yeah just trying to give back a little something and also create an opportunity for uh, for people to share uh, or to share some of my learning and knowledge and uh, philosophies that I've built over the last 20 years and uh, a lot of people helped me in my my journey you know I mentioned uh Pat Echeverry and Alvaro Bettinger, people like Tommy Thompson or Harold Solomon, Martin Mulligan. They've, they've helped me a lot over the years. And I feel like as coaches, we have to learn from each other and we have to help other people. So it's sort of a, a bit of a sharing of that as well. So,
1: no, I think it's great. First of all, I think the, I didn't know you did it in since you've been in quarantine. So fair play to just getting it out and getting it done. And I think the production level is really good. The website looks great. And also, I only saw the free videos, and I thought they were great. Like, you're, even on them too, you'd you learn something. I can, I can see how people learn from videos, and there's a lot of paid content online from experts who haven't really coached past kids level, or you know, they haven't coached internationally. They haven't coached at top level. You've coached from all the way from kids through the transition from the from the junior game to senior game, and then at the Futures, Challengers, top level, top 10 level. So I think there's a lot of value in that. I think it's well-priced as well with the value that's in it. So I'll I'll put a link.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of content out there online, obviously, and some of it's great. and, and, And to be honest, some of it's not good. And I think that's why a lot of a lot of players and other coaches pushed me a little bit to to do this. and I, we, we decided to do it differently, you know, with it being more tutorial based and information sharing and philosophy and, and things because there's lots of drills, there's lots of action and there's lots of stuff. and but this is a little bit more not what you do, but also how you do it based and why you do it. And I think, yeah, I think it's important to get good information out there because um, there there is some misleading information, unfortunately, online as well. And as you said, there's a lot of people that produce a lot of content and and charge money for it, but they don't always have the credentials to back it up. So that's why a lot of people push me. And in the end, I said, okay, I'll I'll do it. And I'll try to do my best to produce something that I hope is a, a some
1: use and value to to everyone that watches it. Yeah, no, I I agree with you because the bad content, maybe they're really good marketeers so they can get in front of everybody and they can sell them a fake sale. But no, I I think this is really good and I hope some people go over over to lcstennis.com and check it out and just buy into it. But, you know, really good. And hopefully it's good to have another side project that you can work on. Your 20 years of coaching or whatever has gone into this and here you go. And yes, so hopefully people go check it out right now. Well, after this, after this, but I'm going to move on to here. On to I want to end on obviously your perfect player. I saw you had it on your Twitter account. You shared your. But just before we get on to that, can I just ask you? We've had we've seen a lot of top juniors in the world, top ten. We've had Irish top fifty juniors, but they've ultimately failed to make the transition into a top hundred player. And I want to ask you, from your experience, what what's needed from players? Is, Be it their skills, their team, and everything else to make that, to finally make that transition into a top 100 player.
0: Well, I think it's it's an understanding that it's a process is important. In my journey, I had an interesting experience with 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 Rashad Obviously, he Obviously, was the number one junior in the world and hardly lost a match. To be honest, his last six eight months playing junior tennis, he, he won a junior slam. He was finished number one. He won the Orange Bowl. He literally won almost every tournament he played. And then you you transition and and you go from feeling like you're a superhero to losing all the time, or to struggling, or not you know thinking that, ah, well, this was really good and now it's actually not that good. And so it's understanding that it's a process. And then I believe it's very important to have consistency and continuity with your team and with with your way of going about things and not change too much. A lot of people panic and they think, oh, now I'm in the pros, I need to hire this coach or I need to get this. And and they change everything and and they lose what they, they had in the first place. So for me, it's a lot about consistency and continuity, understanding that it's a process and a journey and then also you have to be realistic. A lot, of, a lot of kids come through and they, yeah, they were top 50 juniors or they were number one junior and they just think it's going to be easy. Like, oh, well, I'm going to, in two more years, I'm going to move up because the, the junior ITF circuit is a bit unrealistic because every year your ranking will get better by default because the older kids that were in theory, the higher ranked have all gotten too old and disappeared. So they come off the rankings and you just move up. 25 percent or 50 percent in your ranking every year doing the same thing so once you get to say the top 50 well maybe the next year you'll be 25 without necessarily having gotten any better so that's the thing in the men's game it's not like that nobody's moving out of the way i mean look roger's roger's getting up there in age and he's still right there at the top he's not going anywhere and if you want to take his spot you've got to be better or you've got to beat him and um, that's the that's the mindset, and I think uh, you, you've got to understand that, and you've got to also be realistic that it's going to take time. It's not going to be like in. Three months, I went from being a good junior to being top even 200. It's a long process and um, you've got to be willing to put the work in as well. I think some players, they're they're not always willing to make adjustments or change, or not changes, but improve parts of their game. They just think something's really good because it was good in juniors and they don't realize that at the next level, it might not stand up to, to things the same way. And you've got to be realistic about that and you've got to be willing to put the work in to improve and and sort of accept that, you know what, I'm not number one junior in the world. I'm actually number 541 in the ATP rankings and I'm climbing from there. And that's a, that's a big one um, as part of that transition process. And um, I think a lot of players also panic. They don't get the results straight away. They expect it to be easier than it, it, it maybe is. And then uh, they, they panic, they change too much, they change the coach, they change their forehand, they do all. They, they get too extreme with it. Um, or they just think, oh, I'm not good enough. And then it, it messes, they, they, they have the wrong mindset then. They, they lose their self-confidence or their belief. Or for short, you could say they lose a bit of their mojo from being a, a top player in the world as a junior to being like they're now a nobody. And uh, they lose a bit of that. So that's where the continuity and the consistency and the support people around you are important as well.
1: And are some of them a bit soft as well? Say, like, if you're a talented player, you can climb to the top of the ITF rankings. But once you're 18, if you don't start working with that talent, you're wasting your time.
0: Yeah, it's tough. It is tough because there's no easy matches in the men's game or the women's now. It's, it's it's very tough level of competition. And yeah, you, you also physically, the game, the men's game, is is, is a different level than the juniors. So... There's a lot of aspects that you've got to you've got to rise up and you've got to bridge the gap. And um, yeah, some players are just not willing to 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 put in those hard yards. And, and it's tough. I have to be honest. You know, you're if you're number 15 junior in the world and you're playing at Wimbledon in in July, and then next year in January you're playing at a future in uh, Africa or China and there's nobody watching. You're you're losing money and you're you're battling at five all in the final set against another player in the same. Set. Situation. And it can be a bit almost demoralizing or demotivating. So again, it, it becomes about the mindset and, and the determination and those things are a big part of it too. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a very important area and a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get it right.
1: No, well, hopefully there's a few tips in your videos to help them get through that, some of them. So we're going to move on to, I just quickly, your, I saw you your perfect player posted on Twitter. And just curious, I know it's been doing the rounds, Djokovic, Murray, Nadal, they all had their take on their favorite player. So did most ATP players.
0: Yeah, it's been like a challenge thing, yeah.
1: It has. So I'm curious, I wanted to do this initially and with players and say, you're not allowed to mention Federer, Djokovic or Nadal, who would you put in there? But yours is done already. And first of all, we're going to, with the mail here, serve, you have a popular Nick Kyrgios in there. Yeah. Just give us a one line, obvious reason why you've Nick Kyrgios in there.
0: Well, you know, a lot of people went with Isner, and, uh, and, and and Isner, John has a great serve, there's no question, it's amazing, but I just felt like, you know, there's a lot of players that would have, a maybe not as good as him, but they'd have a very good serve if they had his um, physical attributes in terms of the height, so I wanted to go with a server that I felt had a, a great serve, but was um, not as vertically gifted, I, I think is the way to say it. And for me, anyway, the best two serves I've ever seen in the world is is Pete Sampras and Nick Kyrgios. And um, you know, I just I have a personal relationship with Nick. I've known him since he's a young kid from the time I was at Tennis Australia. And um, I just, yeah, I think his serve is something incredible. And if if we were to say that, and I, I don't think anybody would necessarily disagree with me that Djokovic is the best returner that our game has ever seen. I was uh, in Acapulco at the ATP tournament there, and I was sitting courtside in actually in Nick's box at that time. And I watched him serve 27 aces past Novak in two sets, first and second serve to beat Novak. I think it was maybe 7-6, seven, 7-5 seven, on a hard court with no wind, good conditions, everything was good. And I just thought to myself, "Wow! I mean, who can serve like that?" And I think most of the players that have faced Nick's serve say that it's just something incredible. So, I, I think just the quality of it, the placement, the accuracy, the uh, the power he has, the variety he has, just it's it's the best serve in the world. And if I, you know, picking my perfect player, I'm going with Nick. So
1: back in here, okay, that's that's fair. The, my counter argument, and not that I'm going to pick, would be Feder for the same reason. Doesn't have his power, but he has that. We don't know. We don't know where it's going.
0: If there was a second serve category, I'd pick Roger every day because Roger's second serve is incredible, and also Roger's serve is incredible. I mean, you don't be. You don't be as great a legend uh, of the sport as him without having a great serve. But unfortunately, you have got to pick one. I mean, if I could put five, you'd put a lot of names, but
1: w- one will do. So, forehand, you've gone for yeah, Federer. It's just,
0: it's a thing of beauty, and it's it's a devastating forehand. It's just the way Roger hits the low ball on a grass court. You know, somebody hits a short, low ball, and he can hit that very hard and aggressive anywhere in the court and come forwards. The, the acceleration he has on that is just. Incredible, and um, clay court, hard court, grass court. His forehand is just—it's it, a massive weapon, and it's also nice to look at. So, I have to, had to pick that. If you could pick any forehand, it's for me. It, Rafa's got an amazing forehand. Gonzalez had an amazing forehand, but yeah, there's many through history. But I got to go with uh, got to go with Roger.
1: Okay, that's that's a fair. We've heard Federer mention that Nadal seems to be the the most favourite. A bit of Del Potro thrown in there. They and a bit of I seen Gonzalez mixed in.
0: Yeah, Del Potro made forehand. Berdic had a, had a pretty big forehand. Maybe it wasn't at the, the, those guys' level, but it was still pretty devastating sometimes.
1: And Okay, so backhand, you've gone for Vavrinka.
0: Yeah, I had to. Yeah. yeah everybody goes for Novak or Murray or Agassi or maybe even Nishikori. Trafelnikov um, had a great backhand. Safin's backhand was really good. But I just, for me, I play with one hand. And... Um, also I just think the, the the power and how heavy Stan can hit the ball from the backhand corner and his ability to open the cross court angle and then rip it up the line and I just think it's incredible. And then even when he plays players like Novak and and Gail and him are friends, so I know him quite well and and they practice a lot together, he can get the ball past the, the the fastest and the best movers with his backhands. So it's it's a combination of being a one-hander. It's really nice to look at the the swing, the technique is good and his footwork is exceptional. He gets in great position and people don't always see that. But yeah, for me it's just it's so heavy his ball. And, and to win Rolling Garros with a one hander, I think it's a it's it's maybe even harder. So
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think it is beautiful. And plus he absolutely beats the crap out of it. He's just a beast of a man.
0: And, you know, Novak's backhand is amazing as well, but just me being a one hander for my perfect play, I, I I wanted to go with Stan and he's a great guy too. So
1: Great. Okay. So moving on to oh, the slice backhand, Roger Federer.
0: Yeah, I added the slice backhand category. Not everybody had that. I think Cahill put the slice backhand as well, but I think it's an important shot in the game and we, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to it. And Roger's is incredible. I've never seen anybody hit a slice that can go that, that has that heavy feel to it. It, it. it zips through the court. It stays so low and he can also move it around different parts of the court and, and change the speed on it. And even his sort of backhand chip return at Wimbledon, like one year playing Roddick, who was serving incredible, and he put every backhand return in the court, and and didn't give Roddick too many aces and nothing for free, and it was just it's just incredible. So Ken Rosewall had an amazing slice backhand as well. Have to mention it. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's the 20 slams and and Roger and the style he goes about it. It's just yeah, it's too good.
1: It's normally the Aussies and the Brits have the great slices from the grass.
0: Yeah, Tim Henman had a really good slice. Yeah, Murray has a good slice. Like, yeah, but Rogers for me just has that extra bite and zip.
1: I think there's nothing better than watching like the pros hit the slice, especially Federer behind the court, and you just see the ball float and roll, and it just—I think they use it a lot of times to buy themselves time. I don't think people realize that that they buy themselves so much time with a slice backhand that lands on the baseline. And yeah, they're, things are beauty. So the return, you've gone for the most popular returner out there, Novak. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. <laughs> and I, I know very well because it's the player that Gail has struggled with a lot. And I've spent hundreds of hours watching the videotape of him and trying to figure out the best way to play against him and looking at every stat you can imagine against everybody. And it just further illustrates the the, the number of first serve returns in court, the, the depth, the quality, of the court placement, the, the percentages of break points converted, the break points he gets. And and even when you, you know, I haven't played against him, but my players played against him many times. And just even just sitting there as a coach, you, you watch your guy hit a great serve and it comes back and lands on their baseline and it's like they've got nothing for it. It's, it's it's incredible.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's demoralizing when you're pumping down the serves and oh. best serve ever and it's coming back and you're in trouble already.
0: And he's a hard guy to ace. He's a really hard guy to ace, which also comes back to why I went with Kyrios on the club because he's one that I've seen do it so well.
1: Nice, nice. Okay. Uh, next, Volley. Nice to see Stefan Edberg in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, class act, incredible player and you know, McInerney has great volleys, lots of, you know, Federer has good volleys, Sampras had great volleys, Rafter, there's many of them, but I just felt like Igberg, from, from my perspective as a coach, his movement, his court position, the way he used his legs, the way he got right down on his volleys and just the technical quality as well as the hands and the skills. were, were it, 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 Yeah, it's, the, it's the, be- the best volley or the perfect volley for me. So I had to go him. Go
1: good choice. And we have next, no surprise on movement we have mr gail monfi in there
0: yeah absolutely i mean i'm one of the fortunate ones that i've actually been able to see what he's capable of uh, in in training sessions on running tracks and uh, on the court doing different movement drills and uh, explosive stuff plyometrics and bungees and all sorts of stuff And, and it just for me he's he's one of the greatest athletes in the world in any sport and, and probably one of the best, if not the best athlete to play tennis and just the way he moves and the things he can do on the court, uh, the speed that he has, the, the way he, yeah, it's just, it's something incredible. Um, yeah. There's a lot of guys that move great. Novak is another one that moves unbelievable. And so did Murray and, and Nishikori does Rafa. There's many. Redu Albot is an incredible mover on the court, but Gale, for me, just the power and the explosion and the speed. Uh, yeah. And I don't think that many people would argue with me.
1: <laughs> I was telling you earlier that Fognini was on your sport, on your sport on the Instagram Live with Barbara Shet today. And one of the questions was, who is the best mover on the tour? And Fognini was like, without a doubt, it's Monfils. He goes, yes, Jockfrid's good, but Jockfrid's good at other things. He's flexible, he's agile, but overall best mover, he's like, and he says, they all agree it's monfi. So,
0: And there's a thing about movement too, is it's not just about getting to the ball, it's what you can do with the ball when you get there. And he has a great way to, the way he balances his body and, and, and the way he can slide on the hard court sometimes, even going forwards and just, he can produce amazing shots from difficult positions of the court. And that's a, that's a big part of it too. You know, I saw a thing on the ATP, it was maybe ATP website or tennis TV, and they had a, a track and they, they had 10 guys and 100 meter sprint who would win. And Gales was, uh, was on there, and I was kind of chuckling to myself that, I mean, no disrespect to any of the other guys, they're amazing athletes, but I've seen him run 100 meters on the track, and there's Olympic athletes that would, would have a hard time with him. So he's probably going to win that race with a couple of seconds.
1: he may be in the olympics someday i think there's a lot of top athletes in different sports who are really physically gifted and they could have done any sport
0: yeah yeah so he's
1: one of them but moving on to an important one here mindset you went for the king for sure rafa yeah
0: it's just obviously you have 12 roland Garroses there which is it's one of the toughest tournaments to win i think and and he's done it time so that says it that says it all but it's also his attitude just the way he goes about everything practice the, the way he is in, in in matches in smaller tournaments just his overall his mental strength his mindset and he's the best example as a coach that you can give to young kids is just have a mindset like Rafa and everything's fine you know and I think uh yeah it's a credit to him and he's a great person and uh yeah <laughs> I don't think so many people would argue with with Rafa in that one either. you could put him in every category and he'd be okay but uh, mind the the mental toughness and the mindset. It's yeah. It's everybody wants to play Rafa. So
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Normally that mindset. A lot of players who aren't technically gifted have tend to have mindsets at the lower level like that, where they're just fighters. They know okay, I don't have a service big, my forehand isn't that good. They're weaker, but mentally they're stronger. But Rafa just seems he has it all. He has the game, the mentality.
0: Yeah, and also the longevity, the way he comes back from injuries. And uh, the amount, you know, he's won 19 Grand Slams, and he might end up winning the most. Uh, who knows? And um, just the way he goes about everything—it's—and um, he's humble, and he—he's yeah, a good person, and he continues to have a hunger to do more, given all that he's already done. So it's incredible.
1: We can do the female here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so for serve, you've gone for Serena Williams.
0: Yeah, amazing serve. Uh, it's a, it's big. It's accurate. It's quality, and it's stood the te- you know it's it's stood up under pressure. Of the, the 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 number of Grand Slams she's won and how long she's played It's just it's amazing.
1: Yeah, good choice. Who's who would be a second in there for you if, if to pick a second best?
0: Oof, that's a tough one. I mean, now I I think uh, Polischkova has a good serve. Um, Kvitova, uh, being lefty as well, has a really good serve. But honestly, I it, it's not really for me. It's not really close. I think Serena's serve is just Something that's next level, you know.
1: When she gets going, it's unbelievable. Forehand, Steffi Graf.
0: Yeah, I mean, come on, she won—is it twenty-three or twenty-four Grand Slams?
1: I'm not sure the exact number.
0: Twenty-two, maybe twenty-three. A lot, anyway. (laughs) And just an incredible player. And when I was a kid growing up, she was the the number one women's player in the world, and. To, to watch her play and watch her practice and the way she dominated the court with her forehand and she won so, so many big matches with it and it was just a big aggressive shot. And yeah, I think it's important that we, it's, it's hard to compare generations, but I think it's important that we, we always look back at those legends of the game. And yeah, her forehand was incredible.
1: Amazing, amazing. And backhand, back to Serena.
0: Yeah, that was a tough one. Because there's a lot of uh, a lot of women that have really good backhands. Um, I would even say Svitolina would be right up there with the backhand. But again, I just felt like uh, the longevity Serena's played with. And um, a lot of people talk about her forehand, but having coached players that's played against her, I've always felt like her backhand has just been something like a, just a rock and so strong. And so, yeah, I went with her because also doing things under pressure, it almost counts more. So just having won so much, I think yeah, the backhand was something very, very
1: good. When you're as good as her, she's gonna be mentioned here a few times. It's only normal.
0: Exactly. It's normal. And I am probably my second my second backhand would have gone with Henin because it was another it was a bit like Stan, it was a thing of beauty.
1: Yeah, she was such a great player. Uh, next, slice backhand is Marismo.
0: Yes. Yeah. Great slice backhand. I mean, she's a Wimbledon champion. She she was always tough for, for people to play against. And also in the women's game, they, they don't, you know, Steffi Graf had an amazing slice backhand too. Um, but uh, I just felt like maybe Marissimo as an athlete was maybe even stronger in just uh, the way she used it. And I just thought it was something really amazing. And, and you don't see that many women with the using the slice. It's, it's nice to see Ash Barty who uses and mixes in the slice now and, and is number one in the world. And yeah, Marissimo for me had, had a great slice backhand.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I've heard say about Ash, that she's so good. She uses that so effectively. She takes the females out of their comfort zone with it and brings them out. She can do magic with it. It's like a, a wand, magic wand she has and causes them trouble.
0: Yeah, it's, um, yeah. And I, I think Emily had a really great backhand. Slice backhand was great.
1: We have a triple winner here with volley, movement and mindset. All goes to Justine Hennon.
0: Yeah, for sure. I've never seen anybody move on a court as, as well as her. The, the power of the explosion, the way she covered and closed the angles and, and was in the right positions of the court and the way she moved on clay play court And also, I was fortunate to spend a little time. I worked for for her and and her academy with with Sixth Sense. And just to see how she worked and everything that she did uh, on and off the court, yeah, her movement was something special. She was also one of the the women's players that wasn't afraid to get forwards and spend a lot of time at the net and finish points at the net. And she she really did have uh, great volleys, a one-handed backhand volley for the girls, is something that you see a bit less. You see more than two hands. Um, and I just think that, yeah, she had uh, great skills at the net. She could, you know, do a lot of things and felt like, yeah, the, the volley goes to her. There's a lot of women's doubles players that also have some great volleys. And, you know, Ash Barty has really good volleys. has, But I just felt like overall, Justine as well, seven-time Grand Slam champ, number one in the world, the volley was tested even more under pressure, so had to go with that. And the same with the mindset. I've never seen a player that could push herself so much that was so professional, so dedicated and so, uh, so hardworking and so mentally tough and resilient on the court. I mean, she was one of the smallest girls and she was number one in the world and competing against people like Serena who just physical, uh, specimens, you know, and, uh, just her strength of, of character and mindset is something, uh, something on, on the lines with Rafa. And, and she's also a four time Roland Garros champion. So, you know, those things go hand in hand, you know.
1: Like, imagine a boxing match, Serena versus Justine Like They'd be like, this is only going one way. Like You never know. (laughs) Come on, most of the time that there's no chance at all. But anyway, Liam, thank you very much. It was great chatting with you. I learned a lot there. Thank you very much. And yeah, take care. Hopefully you get back to the tennis court soon.
0: Yeah, let's hope we
1: can play soon. (laughs) Guys. Hope you enjoyed that. Liam was so nice to speak to. Gave us lots of great information. Great to get insights from the top players, from him coaching at all the different levels. Really insightful. So thank you very much, Liam. Go check out his website at lcstennis.com. Just have a look at the free videos and see if you're interested. That could be really nice. And before I sign off, I will tell you next week's guest. It is Craig Tiley, the Australian Open Tournament Director and Tennis Australia CEO. Really excited to talk to Craig. I met him briefly last year at the Aussie Open. Really nice man and can't wait to get his opinion on the future of tennis during these tough times and after. Okay, until then, bye.